Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. It's a drill. It's a toaster. Genesis 22. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We've been looking at a series on Old Testament saints and examples from their lives, practical application to our own lives. We're finishing up Abraham today. This is the fifth week we've done on Abraham. And uh, the key word here is in verse one. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. It's a good word to describe this experience, don't you think? A test, huh? I really want to think about this subject and uh, so that we understand exactly what God is up to when he tests us and why he does it and what he's after. It's very important. First of all, let's talk about tests that we're from. You know, we're familiar with tests in our own lives, right? Kids in school, you know about tests? 
Yes? Who likes tests? Come on, don't be... Oh, I saw a hand shoot up and go down, but because it shot down, I won't reveal that person's identity. <laughs> tests. We, are, we have tests all the time. We live with tests. A lot of them we don't know about, but they're there anyway. Generally speaking, a test that we do is to determine the quality of something. And when we're done with the test on whatever it is we're testing, we, we apply a rating to it. We say how well that whatever it was did on the test. That's the whole purpose of a test, right? For example, um, <clears throat> we place our lives in uh, possible jeopardy every day and don't even think about it because we're relying the tests have been done on the things that we're committing our lives to. Do you know that? You get in your car, you press the accelerator. You're just assuming that as you're hurtling down the freeway at 65 miles an hour that the wheels are not going to fall off. Right? We just, in this country, we assume, don't we? We assume a lot. You get in an elevator. How many have ever read uh, the inspection record in, inside the elevator when you got in? The, wow! <laughs> Woo! Every once in a while, you guys throw me for a loop. Well, that's good. Why did you read the inspection record? Yeah. But we get in. How many have gotten in, read the inspection record, and got out? And not you? Ah, one person. Two. Wow. Okay, very good. But you see, uh, we rely on the fact that Otis or whoever the company is that installed that elevator did so after serious testing. If it says weight limit 1,200 pounds, you hope they just didn't test it right up to 1,200, right? Or 1,000. Yes? In fact, in this country generally, um, things are tested two and three times what they're rated at. Do you know that? Just to be on... Isn't that good? I'll tell you, we take things for granted. Um, a good example uh, in... I think it was Turkey. Uh, they had a... You know, they've had several earthquakes... About a decade ago, in one particular earthquake, um, they, they had a, several buildings that, ha that were supported by pillars, concrete pillars, okay? <clears throat> now, over here, <clears throat> if we use concrete pillars to support a building, it's loaded with reinforcing bar inside, re rebar, <clears throat> right? You know what they made these pillars out of? They took 55-gallon drums, and they stacked them on top of each other, and then they coated the outside with concrete. Yeah. And a lot of people died as a result. Now, the interesting thing is that you could go to the U.S. and look at a pillar-supported building, and you could have gone to Turkey and looked at these and said, wow, they look the same. Isn't that interesting? You see, that's what a test is to determine. Because you can look at something, and you can look at two items that are supposed to be identical in strength and in whatever else, safety and everything, but they could be worlds apart. And that's the purpose of a test. You see, the only way you can find out what those things are made of and how far they can go is to test them. Right? That's it. And so testing is really a good thing. Uh, we, we talked about school. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> just like we can't just go to a manufacturer and take their product like a toaster <clears throat> and just take their word for it that it's safe, that when I plug it in, I'm not going to get electrocuted. You want a third party to confirm that, right? Isn't that a good idea? 
How many have heard of UL before? Yeah, very good. Okay. A lot of you haven't. When you go home, just for grins today, go around and look at your appliances at home. Somewhere on there, there's going to be a little circle with the letters UL inside, or there should be. <clears throat> if there isn't, I probably would trade that item in for another one. UL stands for Underwriters Laboratories. <clears throat> it's an independent organization. It's, it's not part of the government, by the way. A lot of people think that. It was started over 100 years ago where um, they just decided to independently provide a place where uh, uh, manufacturers could bring items and have them subject these things to as many tests as they feel are necessary so that when it comes out of the laboratory with their stamp of approval, that means when the consumer comes and buy it, he's safe. It'll, it'll do what it's supposed to be doing and it won't fly apart or electrocute you or, or you know any other bad thing like that. And so you look for the little UL on the, on the appliance. Of course, I don't think we typically do, but we're just used to it being there. <clears throat> and it's very interesting, by the way, so you wonder what these had in common. Well, that's what they are. And in fact, this, this uh, ancient drill I have, it actually has a listing. You look under the UL, and this one says listed 406A. You can go to their website, search 406A, and it'll tell you all the tests this was subjected to and what it had to do to pass it. Thank you, no, Ed. Similarly, <clears throat> on the uh, toaster, and you can, you can find the stamp typically where they have the model number, serial number, and so on. You can see the sticker on the bottom, right? And this one is listed 516B. And you can go find standard 516B and find out what they did to this thing before uh, whatever this company is was allowed to put the sticker on here. Okay? You tracking with me here? So the, the bottom line is, uh, for the manufacturers, what they're after is that final seal of approval. That's what they want. That little UL circle is highly coveted by companies. It's the difference between selling the product and not. In fact, uh, once a company gets the UL uh, certification, they will often not only put a, a, a stamp, a piece of paper, they'll actually mold it into the plastic or metal sometimes. I mean, it's that important. Okay, well, um, we, I mentioned school. Again, uh, it would be nice if teachers would just take the student's word for it that they know the stuff, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't you like that? Huh? You know, imagine <clears throat> in, you, you, geography, right? You go into class, and uh, instead of, you know, the, the one horrific question on there, list all 50 states and all their capitals. How many could do that right now? Wow. I wish we could take time to hear it. <laughs> but uh, wouldn't it be great, instead of that, you just had a multiple choice question, and it was, do you know all 50 states and their capitals, yes or no? <laughs> now, don't you think the answer might be a little suspect on that sometimes? You see, that's what the test is for, right? And when the test is done, when you've taken the test, everybody in the class could raise their hand and say, yeah, I know. But you really find out when you put them through the test. And at the end, the seal of approval is the grade or disapproval, depending on what the grade is. Right? The third example I have is um, gold, the test for gold. This was big in the gold rush here. Um, you have all these guys coming into the assay office, you know, with their sack of, sack of uh, gold-looking dust, you know. 
And uh, the assay guy, he's going to give him big bucks for this stuff. He wants to make sure it's real gold. So there's a test for real gold. I talked with Andy, our resident uh, chemical engineer, along with NOAD, to make sure I got this right. I looked it up on the web. The, uh, they used to real actually, actually use uh, something called um, aqua, what was it, Fred? Regia, aqua regia, uh, which is a combination of acids. Nowadays, it's nitric acid. That's where we get the phrase, the acid test, by the way. And the interesting thing here, I'll just uh, read what happens. What, what you do is today, if you went to a jeweler and you said, look, this is real, it's 14 karat gold. Look, it says right here. You can take my word for it. Think they would? No, they scrape off a little, just a little flakes of it. And they drop it in nitric acid. Um, if it's just some kind of base metal, it turns bright green. Uh, if it's copper, it turns blue. If it's silver, it turns kind of a cream color. If it's uh, lower grade gold, 10 carat, it turns dark brown. If it's 12 karat gold, it turns light brown. And if it's 14 karat gold, nothing happens. Isn't that interesting? Just with this one little test, you can not only find out if it's real gold or not, but you can find out how good of gold it is. Isn't that cool? The acid test, that's where we get that phrase from. <clears throat> well, you're getting a little insight now into why God tests us. Okay? And it's not for him to find out. It's for him to show to the world what our quality is. First of all, whether it's real gold or not. That is, if we have real faith or not. A test will do that, won't it? Jesus said that in the parable of the sower. One of the soils, remember, the sower goes out and it's real shallow soil. So the seeds don't go very deep. And Jesus said uh, it springs up and boom, right away you got all this growth. But then the sun comes out and it shrivels up. And Jesus says, that's an illustration of the person who hears the word of God and they receive it gladly. Woo, praise the Lord. But then Jesus says, and then persecution hits. There's the test. You understand? You drop a little acid on it. And he says, in that case, the person stumbles. That is, they show that they never had faith at all because they can't stand the persecution. Now, for a real believer... You see, that same test, they'll shine. You'll see that it's real gold underneath because they won't deny the Lord. That's what persecution does. It separates the true from the false. Okay? This is good. Now, it's not always good for us. I mean, fun. But it's a good thing that God is constantly exposing the false from the true. It's, look, if I really don't know Jesus and I think I do, isn't it better to find out now than later? Okay? So it's a good thing. Uh, James, of course, on, on the subject of faith, he says, uh, what good is if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? If there's nothing to back it up, that's not, that's not real faith. You, have to, you, you want to show it. In fact, in that passage in James, he says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? What he's saying is you could see Abraham's faith. Abraham could walk around and say, oh, I have faith. I trust God, but anybody, talk is cheap, isn't it? Abraham proved it, you see. Can you imagine being uh, commanded by God to offer up your only son? Wow, what a test, huh? 
God delights in revealing our faith. Listen um, to what uh, Peter says. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Those are tests. Notice that he acknowledges that when they're happening, a test can be grievous. God knows that, okay? I'm glad he says that, aren't you? You know, he doesn't expect us to go around, oh, man, this is a blast, you know? He understands tests can hurt, and he knows that. It wouldn't be a test if it didn't. So he understands that. He says, but you should greatly rejoice so that the genuineness of your faith, notice that's the test of reality, that's what he says, when it's shown to be real, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Wow. Now you think about that. That's God speaking. And in this world, we have our uh, standards of what's what's worthy and, and, and valuable and what's less valuable, right? God says, and he's the true judge of what's worth something. He says that when our faith is shown through trials and stands the test, he said, that is more precious than gold itself. Think about that. What's gold going for now? Five, six hundred bucks an ounce? Nine hundred? Wow. Nine hundred dollars an ounce. You want an ounce of gold? Listen, God says that our faith, when he tests it and it, and it holds strong and proves true, he says it's more, more precious than gold. Gold perishes, he says. Isn't that great? That's what's valuable. And so, uh, let me finish. It says, uh, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what that last phrase is saying? God is saying, that's where the seal of approval comes in. That's where the rating is. He says, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to reveal those testings of faith. Everybody's going to know about it. Isn't that cool? He's going to publish it. People are going to know about that faith that was tested and came through like gold. So he delights in doing that. Otherwise, we all walk around saying, I have faith, I have faith. You know, oh, that's great. God wants to bring it out. He wants the world to see it. We should be doing it every day, right, by our lives. But then God will bring tests to really show just how strong it really is. A great example of this is uh, the Syrophoenician woman in the Gospels. I love that incident. You know the story. Uh, she comes to Jesus, and uh, she has a demon-possessed daughter. And she's at her wit's end, and she wants help. She goes through literally five rounds of testing. In fact, Jesus treats her like no other person who came to him. And when you read it, you wonder, why is Jesus being so rude to her? He's not. He knows what kind of faith she has, you see. And it's precious to him because he doesn't see it very often. And so what he's doing, he's applying pressure. That's what you do in a test. Pressure, heat, over time, all these various things. He's applying literally a blowtorch to her faith. And you know what happens? It just shines in all its glory. And we never would have known this woman's faith if Jesus hadn't treated her that way. It's wonderful. All you would have read, a woman came to Jesus, had a demon-possessed daughter. He, she said, please heal my daughter. Jesus said, uh, as your faith is, so be it unto you. And she went away. But it didn't go like that. First, she comes and says, help my daughter. It's very important. In the scripture, it says this. He answered her not a word. 
You don't see that anyplace else. Why does God say that? Because Jesus was beginning the test. Can you imagine that? Coming to Jesus after everybody else who comes and pleads their causes. People healed right and left. And you come, finally you get there. You get to the head of the line. You know, you're number one now. And you say, Jesus, my daughter is demon-possessed. Please heal her. And he just kind of stares at you, you know. Wouldn't that be discouraging? Huh? Well, you see, she had faith. And she didn't just have faith. She had strong faith. And Jesus knew it. And he wanted everybody to see it. So first, he didn't say anything to her. A lot of people would go away at that point. They'd give up, you know. They'd probably feel unworthy anyway than when they first got there. You know, I don't deserve his attention. I understand. You know, he's got more important things to do. She didn't do that. She, she didn't go away. So the next part came from the disciples. You know what they did? They all went to Jesus, probably misunderstanding his silence. And they said, send her away, Lord. Can you imagine that? Whoa. I think I'd leave, you know, before the invitation came. You know? Lord, look, she's not even a Jew. She's a Gentile. Just tell her to leave. Go. Still, she didn't leave. Jesus is not done with the test yet. He turns to her and he says, look, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you don't qualify. You're a Gentile. Uh, Most people have definitely gone by now, right? She, uh, instead of leaving, she cries out, Lord, help me. Jesus is not done with the test yet. Listen to what he said. He said, you know, it's not good to take the children's food and throw it uh, to the dogs. Wow. Some people would get offended, wouldn't they? I'm not a dog. How can you talk to me like that? I'll go someplace else. This is great. You know what she said. She said, but listen. Even the the little dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. Isn't that great? Wow. Okay, Jesus is done with the test at that point. He's brought it out. She is a woman who will not quit. She's going to hang on to Jesus until she gets what she wants. Faith. And now here's the UL seal of approval because it's right here in your Bible and has been for thousands of years. And it's a part of God's eternal word. That's better than a little UL circle, let me tell you. These are the words of Jesus. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Amen? Oh, man. How'd you like that seal of approval, huh? He doesn't say that anyplace else in the Bible. Closest is the uh, uh, centurion with his, with his servant. But it's not like this. Jesus put her to the test. And she passed with flying colors. Now, isn't that great? We never would have known what kind of faith she had if Jesus hadn't done that tested her so in summary then you see god brings pressures tests trials into our lives as believers i'm talking to christians now if if you're not a christian then it's i don't know if you really call it a test the point is he will bring pressure into your life if you're not a true christian so that it can be shown it was never gold to begin with it was a base metal that you need to know that but for believers First of all, he does it to reveal genuine faith so it can be seen. Otherwise, you can't see it. He likes to put it on display like that wonderful woman. Secondly, it strengthens true faith. So to go through a test and pass it, so to speak, with God's approval, our faith gets stronger. 
Because we can look back and say, yeah, God was faithful all through the whole test. But finally, maybe this is the most important thing. It glorifies him. You see, let's not leave that out. Because when, when we endure a test, we're telling the world, even though times are tough, my God is great. We're still saying, my God loves me. My God is good. My God is wise. My God is powerful. It's not that things have escaped his attention or he's, or he's forgotten about me. And we can think about uh, the results of tests in the Bible and how they have blessed us to this day. Who's, who's probably the most uh, common person you'll think of in a test? Job. That's right, Job. Think about it. If God had not uh, brought that guy to the ring, and by the way, let me say this. God will not put you in a test that you cannot handle. Okay? Let me stress that. God will never subject you to a test which you cannot bear. Isn't that good? And so, as extreme as Job's test was, by the way, he didn't fail the test, so God knew how far he could go with him. But if, if, if Job had not been uh, put through that test, think of that, we would not have these wonderful words. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Isn't that great? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Man. Now, it's one thing to say that, you know, when all your kids are still alive and they're thriving, you know, and you got sheeps and sheep and, and goats and flocks and herds and, and a nice, nice house, you know, and all that, which he did to begin with. Anybody can say that. Job said it when he lost everything. He still said it. You see. Or... Um, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isn't that great? We wouldn't have those wonderful statements if God had not put Job through that test. And how many times have those words strengthened a believer in time of need? In fact, talk about um, uh, words from a test strengthening believers. How about the Psalms? Do you know where a lot of the Psalms come from? David being tested, hunted by Saul. Look at the heading sometime on some of the Psalms. David, when he was fleeing from Saul in the cave of Adullam. David, when he'd been captured by the Philistines. David, when he was fleeing from Absalom. He wasn't saying it when the sun was out and everything was wonderful. He was saying it when his life was threatened. And you'll find the most beautiful words in there of trust in God in the most extreme circumstances. Who knows how many times believers have been strengthened through the Psalms that way. Well, yeah, we're finally back at Abraham now. Uh, and you can look back at your Bible here in chapter 22. But here is another example where now we have permanently preserved in the word of God a test that God subjected one of his children to and they passed the test. And now it's here to encourage us as well. In addition to that, Abraham didn't know it at the time, but when it was all over, God provided here through this episode one of the most beautiful pictures of the cross in the Bible. It's one of them, isn't it? It shows us an aspect of the cross that is usually not portrayed in other pictures of the cross because it shows us the love of the Father for the Son in, in, in a way no other passage does. Okay, so... Uh, here we are with Abraham and just I'm not going to go through all we've gone through before with Abraham other than to say his his faith has kind of gone like this, right? You know, up and down. 
He started out like everybody as a, as a young believer. So when he left Ur, he took a bunch of friends with him that he shouldn't have and family members. He got to Israel and, and uh, or Canaan, as it was called then. And uh, a famine came and his faith got a little weak and he went down to Egypt. And not only that, then he lied about his wife. You know the stories, right? But he had a, he had a victory. He had an up there uh, after uh, taking care of the kings that had kidnapped Lot, remember? The king of Sodom basically offered him a king's ransom. And there, at that point, Abraham shone like a star because he says, I don't even want a shoe, shoe thong from you. I don't even want a string from you because I have my God and that's all I need. So there he did well. Later, he um, flopped again when he lied about his wife with Abimelech. Why? It was a lapse of faith because he was afraid. That's the opposite of faith, isn't it? God had said he was going to live to a ripe old age, but his faith, he just couldn't hang on to that, and he, and he lied again. Well, that's all behind us now. And we're probably, we don't know how old Isaac is at this time, probably in his teens. So let's say 15, mid-teens. So Abraham would be 115 at this point. But the point is, it's been a good decade or so since the last episode uh, in the book. And we would hope that Abraham has grown in his faith. And of course, we find out that he has tremendously. Okay. One last thing now before we, we get into the passage. It's very important. Some people read this and they think that um, Abraham uh, didn't know what God was up to at all. In fact, he went out and he was going to offer his son and his son was going to be left dead on the altar and that would be the end of the story. That's not true. The Bible tells us that God had already given Abraham something to hang on to to make it through this test. Okay? Listen to book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, there's that word, offered up Isaac. Notice, by the way, it says he offered Isaac up. Isn't that interesting? You see, he, he, had, he, he reached out his hand, took the, the knife, and he was going to slay his son. He got as close as he could without slaying Isaac. And so God says, look, we'll stop it there and we'll just put it down as credit. You, 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 you offered him up. I'm glad he did that. But God credits him with having done what God asked him to do. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now that's important. God had already promised Abraham that this boy that he has on the altar, he was the one through whom all of his descendants were going to come. Can God lie? No. And Abraham knew that. And so he just hung on to that promise of God that he'd had earlier for all it was worth. And he didn't understand how God could promise him to have kids through Isaac and at the same time tell him to slay him. Those are contradictory, aren't they? A dead son, you don't have descendants. And so it goes on to say, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So... That was how Abraham worked it out. He knew both had to be true. He knew that God had commanded him to sacrifice his son, but he also knew that it would be through Isaac that he'd have the descendants. So Abraham, as he wrestled with this, came to the conclusion that if indeed he ends up sacrificing his son, that God will raise him from the dead because he has to keep that first word. You got that? Very important. God would not have done it otherwise if he had not given that word to him, that promise. That's so important. By the way, a little aside on that. This is very important. 
Abraham, if you think about it, had two contradictory truths rattling around in his head. Right? Isaac's going to uh, be the place where all your uh, descendants are going to come from. Go sacrifice Isaac. Those They don't compute. And Abraham, it would have been tempting to uh, throw out the slaying part, wouldn't it? You know, well, look, God promised descendants. I can't have descendants if I kill him, so he must be mistaken. Right? I'm saying that because be careful. Professing Christians do that with truths in the word of God that are apparently contradictory. And I could tell you several. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Do do you understand both of those? No. The heresies come when people push on one or the other to sacrifice the one. That's where the problems arise. There is one God. There are three persons who are co-equal as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? You do? I don't. I'm one person. You're one person. That's all I'm used to. God is three persons. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're the ones that are unnatural if you want to think about it. Um, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And yet whosoever will may come. Both of those are true. You believe that? Okay, don't sacrifice one for the other. Abraham didn't do that. Okay, so here we go. The test. In verse 2. Now, as we read this, this is God out of the blue speaking to Abraham. So I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I kind of picture this in the evening, to be honest. Whenever I read this, I have a feeling it happened in the evening. You know, there's nothing to support that at all. Other than um, I'm, I'm hoping that Abraham didn't, ha- didn't have too much time to think about it during the day. You know, so maybe as he just laid down, God, God came to him. I don't know. But that's the picture I have. I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes because Abraham heard this for the first time. We're so familiar with this. He wasn't. And think about what's going through Abraham's mind as you hear God speak. First of all, take now your son. Okay. No problem there. God's asking me to do something with Isaac. Your only son, Isaac. Okay. Now, you say, wait a minute, he's got two sons, Ishmael. Well, as far as God is concerned, there's one. He wasn't being mean to Ishmael, if you remember, in fact. He blessed him. But... Isaac was was the child of promise, the one that God had promised. And he's the only one left, by the way. Ishmael is is removed. So a little bit of clarification there, but it's not clear why he said that. I know why he said it, because we said, remember, this is a picture of what God did in offering his own son for us, right? What's John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's right, only. So it's not a coincidence that God used that word here. Your only son, because I'm going to give my only son. Uh, Now, this is interesting. Whom you love. Why did he say that? Obviously, he loves him as his son. Isn't that kind of redundant? You know, that's not necessary. Uh, At this point, Abraham is certainly agreeing Yeah, I I really love that boy. You know, he's the apple of my eye. He's reminding us. First, he's reminding uh, Abraham, but he's reminding us of just how much it cost 
God to pay for our sin. He gave his son whom he loved. This is my beloved son in whom I find all my delight. Whom you love. Okay. So far, all we know is something's going to happen with Abraham and his son. Well, here's a little more detail. And go to the land of Moriah. Abraham didn't know exactly where it was. We know today that it was actually at Jerusalem. We find that out from, I think it's Second Chronicles. Is that interesting, by the way? He's in, Be- he, he's in Beersheba right now. That's a three days journey to the south from Jerusalem. Now, why in the world did God make him go all that way? Why couldn't he do it right outside the tent? He made him travel three days to go to this place way up north or north from where he was, three days worth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so far you're tracking. Now, okay, and now I know where we're going, someplace up north. I'm taking my son. Now, imagine you're hearing this for the first time. And offer him there as a bird offering. Whoa. How do you think Abraham felt when he felt, heard those words? You think he was grieved? Uh-huh. I think sometimes we think about this and Abraham just kind of sailed right through the whole thing. Uh-uh. What did it say uh, earlier about trials? They hurt. They're grievous. Abraham hurt. In fact, it's interesting to me that God kind of stopped the conversation at that point because he knew Abraham had to deal with that. Because God then says, uh, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, he doesn't even tell him exactly where. But he does sometime later in the night because in the next uh, verse, verse 3, notice this. Abraham rose early, and what does it say at the end? And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Past tense. So sometime during the night, God finished off the command and said, no, this is exactly where I want you to take him. You know, and we don't know exactly how he did that. I doubt he showed him a map, you know. But somehow, maybe in a vision, you know, what it looks like and roughly the direction to go. I don't know. But the point is, after saying those words, offer him as a burnt offering, God just waited a little while before he finished off the details of what he was to do. And he just let Abraham uh, deal with it. God will do that, you know. Sometimes he'll bring a, a, a big test on gradually, you know, rather than just dump it on us all at once. And I think that's what he's doing with Abraham here. Okay, well, what a test, huh? Now, it says um, he rose up early in the morning, and, and it certainly that's often used as an illustration of instant obedience, and I'm sure it is. But I'll tell you what, I don't think Abraham slept that night. What do you think? I wouldn't. I'll tell you, if I'd had this command, I'm not going to go in and put my head on my pillow and, and uh, go out. I'm not even going to go lay down. I'm just going to wait for daylight. You know, I never forget um, before I was a backpacker, uh, my wife and I were uh, on a vacation. I went with her family before we were married on a vacation in Yosemite. And um, her brother was a real good backpacker and he just put on a pack and left. The rest of us stayed in a trailer, you know, down in the tourist area. But her brother slipped on a backpack and headed off in the backcountry as soon as we got there. And so um, I thought, hey, that's cool. I think I'll do that too. 
And so uh, I grabbed this big Dacron sleeping bag, you know, that's not the thing you take backpacking, by the way, okay. And I t- tucked that under my arm. I had nothing else. I had no canteen, no food, nothing. And uh, I just headed out. I didn't know where I was going. This is stupid, isn't it? <laughs> and I didn't go out by faith, by the way, either. But I did go out not knowing where I was going. <laughs> and uh, the first song I saw said, Yosemite Falls. Oh, now that's, that, that must, that's a famous place. I'll go up there. The problem is I started in the evening. And so uh, I'd never even really hiked a trail of that extent in my life. So here I'm going up this trail, you know, shifting this sleeping bag from arm to arm. And it's getting darker. And um, there's a place halfway up to the top of the cliff where you come out right at the base of the huge falls where it's hitting. In fact, you come around a corner of rock and all of a sudden, I mean, you're just blasted with spray and a roar so loud. You can stand next to each other and yell and you can't hear each other. Okay. And that's the place I got, and by then it was pitch dark. And in fact, I'm up on a, you know, the side of a cliff, and so I had to stop. So here I am. I, I don't even know what it looks like where I am because I can't see anything. I felt around for what I considered was a level spot, and I, and I rolled that sleeping bag out. Guess what? I didn't sleep. I lay there all night listening to the roar of that falls and wondering what all the other unidentifiable sounds were. <laughs> and I was way down in that bag, and every once in a while I'd kind of lift it up and peek out, waiting and praying for a little bit of light to hit the sky so I could get down again. And finally, oh, I can't tell you how sweet that appearance was where I could actually begin to see the stuff around me. And I got up. One happy man rolled up my bag and went back down to the trailer. That was my first experience at backpacking. But now I've had other sleepless nights too as an elder and, and Howard can certainly fill you in on some of them that we had together over difficulties as elders. And I'm sure you've had sleepless nights, but you know what I'm talking about? You know, when you got something like that going on, you just don't sleep. I don't think Abraham slept a wink that night. And that was part of the test, you see. All during that night, I wonder if the thought ever crossed his mind, this just can't be right. Number one, God promised descendants through Isaac. Number two, there's no way he wants me to kill my own son. Don't think he didn't think that. One of the, one of the elements of tests uh, from the UL laboratories is not only, they, they push things to their breaking point, by the way. You know that? God doesn't do that. They do that to find out how, how uh, far it can go. But also there's the element of time they will take something like a handle or a button or a circuit and they'll run it over and over and over and over and over and over again repeatedly because that's what you're going to do. In fact, you're not going to do it as often as that. But there's the element of time, not only physical strength and stress and tension, but endurance. That's a key element in a test, you see. And that's one of the reasons Abraham had three days to travel. Isn't it a lot different than if Abraham could quickly slip outside the tent and just do it and get it over with? He's got three days to walk alongside his son. And Isaac doesn't have a clue of the thoughts of love that are going through his father's heart and mind as he's walking alongside of him, you know. But Abraham knows. And imagine the turmoil in his heart 
as he's walking along with the boy. Okay. Um, interesting, by the way, uh, Moriah, as I said, is in the area of Jerusalem. And, and he said, by the way, go to the land of Moriah. So we don't know exactly where it was. Now, this is pure speculation, but um, it, he calls it a mount. And I really believe it was at the place where the cross was later located. We can't prove that. But it's an awfully big coincidence that God had him go to a high place in Jerusalem and do this. And that's where the cross would be later. Well, it's interesting, verse 4, it says, On the third day he lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. That's kind of like the uh, father of the prodigal son. You know, in that case, he was looking with expectation and hope. The father was, you know, looking for the prodigal son. I think here Abraham was looking at it with dread, looking for it with dread. You know, that's why he saw it afar off. He knew what it would look like. And the longer they could travel and not see it, the better. But finally he saw it and he saw it afar off. And as soon as he saw it, he knew, okay, the journey's just about over now. It's time to get down to business. And uh, interesting that he, he has the servants remain behind. You think they could have been helpful? You know, if nothing else, uh, holding Isaac while he tied him or arranging the wood, carrying it. But he left them behind. And it's very significant here um, that it says at the end of verse six, the two of them went together. Now, that's that's interesting. Why does God say that? We know that. He already told us he left everybody behind. But what's more interesting to me is look at the end of verse eight. What does it say? So the two of them went together. He says it again. Why does he say that? We know that. He's saying it because, and this is a source of worship for Christians, for you and me, believers. He's talking about the cross there. And when it comes to the cross, we think about it as the place where Jesus died for our sins. You know, we always enter into it. God is telling us there is a part of the cross that we're not a part of. That we can't enter into. And it's the part between the Father and the Son. You see. As the Son offered Himself up so completely that He was willing to die. And the, and the Father, the heart of love that He must have had toward His Son as He saw the extremities that His Son was willing to go in obedience to Him. It's beautiful. We're not talking about sin. We're not talking about us. Only the Father and the Son at the cross and the, and the beautiful things that transpired there between the two that it, we're not a part of. The two of them went on together at the cross beyond us. And so it was with Abraham and Isaac. I think also Abraham just wanted to be with his son. He didn't want servants, you know, to be distracting there or even to enter into this, you know, to observe it. Just him and his son. It's also interesting that Abraham uses the word worship. Abraham had to tell them that they're going to be doing something. And it's interesting to me the word he uses. He says, we're going to go yonder and worship. Worship. He could have said a lot of things, but he chose that word. He's really defining. By the way, this is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. 
And it's a good thing because it shows us what worship really is. It's giving to God something that costs me. That's what real worship is. If worship doesn't cost, it's not worship. What did David say? I will not give to the Lord that which what? Cost me nothing. Isn't that good? He refused to do it. So he insisted on buying the threshing floor from Aruna. Well, that's a good word, Abraham. He's giving something that costs him everything to God. And I assure you didn't miss that last phrase. What does he say at the end? We will come back to you. He didn't say, I will come back to you. Do you see what he said? We will come back to you. Now, he wasn't saying that to put them off. He meant it because he knew God could not leave his son dead because of the promise. So God is here's the test. God wrote out the, the uh, results of his test. And here midway, he's reminding us the faith of Abraham was strong. And then, of course, Isaac, you, you wonder what Isaac was thinking all this time, particularly when uh, they get closer now and there's no animal. And he asks him. And again, the faith of Abraham comes to in this through in this answer. I don't know how much Abraham understood of what he said. But it's so significant that Abraham's answer to his son, listen to the words, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a bird offering. Abraham relied on God in his answer. He said, I really... I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. I just know God is going to provide what we need. Do you see that? He's relying on the Lord is the point. That's what his answer is revealing here. He's not turning his back on God because of this great thing God asked him to do. He's not hateful. He's not vengeful. He's not spiteful. He's not doubting. He's still trusting God. Okay? So in his answer to his son, God will provide. And in the answer... He prophesies the cross of Christ. Isn't that great? God will provide a lamb for himself. Little did he know what he was saying. Because God did provide a lamb for himself. His own son. Well, they come to the place. And he, and he gets them ready. Um, ties them up. And uh, it says he stretched out his hand. And took his knife. You know, God could have stopped him at any time before this. Right? God knows our heart. What does it say in Hebrews? Uh, he knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. God knew already that Abraham was willing. That he would go this far. He could have stopped him way back in the tent. In fact, as soon as he had the, the donkey loaded and the servants ready, you know, and the fire and the wood... God could have said, okay, Abraham, you don't have to go any further. I, I know your heart and I know you're willing to do it. He didn't do that. Why not? <laughs> That's right. You see, God knew how far he'd go and he wanted him to do it so that Abraham would know it too, by the way, but so that we could see it and that the UL approval would be now in the word of God recorded, not just... And so God knew that Abraham was going to do it, and so he stopped it. No, God has it detailed here every step of the way, all the way up to taking out the knife in all its glory so we can see the faith 
of Abraham in action. You understand? It's so important. It's like gold to God. Okay. Well, uh, it's wonderful that uh, God stops him early. And in fact, here's, here's the UL seal of approval. Verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the Lord to do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Does that say that in your Bible? It says that in every Bible that's ever been printed. It's, it's God's permanent record, a, a tribute, if you will, to the faith of Abraham. It's like pure gold, 14 carat. Okay? And Abraham would say, yeah, it was worth it. It hurt at the time, but I'm so glad he did it. And I'm so glad he did it. I don't know about you. Okay, well, it's time for application. I've been talking to the Christians. I'm going to talk to you in a minute if, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as well because there's an application for you. But first of all, for the believers, I don't have to turn any farther than the Bible itself because God gives us the application. After the passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and all the other uh, people of faith that God refers to as examples to us, he concludes that section with this application. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses is Abraham, Moses, Noah, and all the others there. Although, by the way, they're not here looking at us. They're, they're with the Lord. Okay. He means the record of what they did. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Abraham's race is over. And I'm glad for him. If you're a Christian, you're still in the race. And God knows where you are. You may be in a trial right now. You may be in a severe trial. Okay, the God of Abraham is your God. He is the same faithful God. And if you're in a test, praise God, you have an opportunity to shine like gold. And he will not test you above what you're able to bear. That's a promise. So let me encourage you. See the example of Abraham. What, see the example of the Lord Jesus. That's what that verse goes on to say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, as an encouragement to you. If you don't know the Lord, uh, there's another test that's um, involved in this story. Let me tell you about it. God um, was put to a test, but in his case, it wasn't faith that was tested. He doesn't need faith. It was his love. The love of God was put to a test. Just like the uh, UL test, you know, where they beat on things and stretch them and heat them up and, and do things over time. God took his love and he, and he put it in, in the testing environment. You know where the test took place? It was at the cross at Calvary. Yeah. And there, it was an unusual test environment. The ones who conducted the test were people like you and me, undeserving rebels, haters of God, sinners. And uh, the conditions of the test were this. We took his son, Jesus. We rejected him. We scorned him. Instead of uh, applying high heat or bending, we beat him. 
trying to break his love, you see. We spit on him. We nailed him to a cross. And we weren't through there. We, we were so creative. We came up with all kinds of new ways to try to break the love of God. We mocked him. Made fun of him. Laughed at him while he was dying. The, the tests that the UL do does often are uh, taken to the breaking point, I said. The amazing thing about the test of the love of God is it never broke. It never broke. It never faltered. It didn't even show a fault line in it, the love of God. It went through uh, the greatest stress and heat and pressure that we could ever apply to it, and we could not break it. Praise God. And it says this in Romans. God demonstrates his love toward us. He shows it. God could have just said, I love you. And that would have been the end of it. But uh, like the UL listing, he wanted to prove to us that it was genuine. And so he put it to that test. And it says he demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinning. While we were doing all that stuff at the cross. In the midst of all that stuff. While we were trying to kill his love. He was dying for us. Isn't that incredible? So that we could have eternal salvation. So that we could be forgiven. That's the love of God. Unbreakable. If you're here today. And you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you right now. You know what you're doing? You're testing the love of God. You are. You're putting it to the test. Because he wants you to come to him and you're saying, no, I don't want it. You know, I don't want Jesus. I don't want that love. I don't want it. I don't want him to be a part of my life. And the amazing thing is, look, I can tell you right now, you're not going to break the love of God. He's already proven that it's unbreakable. Okay? You're not going to be able to break it. But he's not going to let you test it forever. It's going to come to an end. You're testing the love of God. Because he has something called patience and it runs out. So you have two choices. Your test of the love of God will stop when you die. When his patience runs out. And you'll be without him forever. Or you can stop that test and surrender to his love. Let him be your Lord and master. And if you do that, an amazing thing happens. You become his child. You become the eternal object of his love. You join the family of God. Well, let me encourage you. If you've been testing the love of God that way, putting him off, rejecting him. Look, he's already been through all of that before and it hasn't broken. But stop abusing it. Instead of abusing the love of God, take advantage of it and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of Abraham and beyond it, the wonderful love of God 
for us. And Lord, we pray for any here believers who might be going through a trial, a test. Lord, we pray that they might see beyond the trial and see you in love. Bringing out their faith as gold. To really uh, bring honor and glory to yourself. We pray for strength and for endurance and comfort for them. And if anyone is here, Lord, today who is still uh, putting your love to the test by rejecting you, by keeping you at arm's length, oh, Lord, we pray that they might finally just give up and give in to the love of God. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be ushered into the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.